0: The work of this church in the world is realized through the
1: generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to
0: uusf.org. I want to thank the ministry and staff at First Unitarian San Francisco, thank you for your gracious welcome to me, and I bring greetings uh, for all of you from the faculty, staff, and students at Star King School for the Ministry in Oakland, California, just across the bridge. Thank you for having us here today. When I was a little girl, I hated thunder and lightning. Hated it. The noise and all that flashing really upset me. And with every spring and summer weather report, I looked to my mother to reassure me. And she always did. She always told me that everything would be fine, that all that noise was just God doing His work, and that I had nothing to be afraid of. One day, many years later, after I was grown and on my own, but before I had kids of my own, I was talking to her and remembering those long ago scary storms. I don't remember what brought it up. And I asked her why thunder and lightning didn't bother her. She said, who said it didn't bother me? I hated it as much as you did. And so I was kind of astonished. I said, why would you make all those little reassuring speeches to me? And she laughed, and she answered, you were a little girl. What good would it do you if we were both scared? As usual, I was left marveling at her consistent courage in the face of so many terrible things. My mother is gone now. She died six years ago this month. And though I miss her every day, there are days when I figure she lived just long enough. She lived long enough to vote for her state senator, vote to send that same state senator to the U.S. Senate, and then help to vote him into the White House twice. At least she lived long enough to see that. Not bad for a Mississippi girl with a third-grade education, but a keenly civic mind and a deep Pentecostal faith. Most of all, even though I miss her with all my heart, I am so grateful that she has not lived to see what has happened in the United States. She would probably not be able to reassure me about the coming storm that all of us face at this moment, just as I am not entirely sure that I can reassure you. Instead, I have come to warn you about the length and the breadth of the storm we are facing and to encourage you to prepare now with all the tools and the gifts that you have in every way that you have so that we might survive and renew our country and our democracy both here and elsewhere. The quality of my life and yours and perhaps our actual lives are under siege right now because the values that protect the possibilities of our lives are in jeopardy. Democracy, the freedom to govern oneself and the rights that attend it, freedom to speak one's mind, freedom to protest injustice from individuals or institutions or governments, freedom to worship or not to worship, freedom to govern one's own body, freedom to learn the truth about one's own country, even when the truth hurts. All these freedoms are under siege, under organized siege, right now. As a woman of African descent, I know this swing toward anti-democratic values has been happening all around the world. As leaders addicted to power seek a kind of control over their citizenry that no single human being has the right to demand. And though there was once a time when leaders at least gave lip service to the idea of America as the beacon of liberty in an unfree world, there now exists a significant element of political forces that have embraced a dangerous Christian nationalism that threatens our faith and our families and our lives as we know it. And that threat is real, ongoing, and organized. I want to continue to stress the word organized. Allow me to draw your attention to the work of the Heritage Foundation and its most recent project, Mandate for Leadership, the Conservative Promise. It's part of the Foundation's Presidential Transition Project 2025. This 920-page document is a conservative blueprint for a takeover of the United States government after the 2024 presidential election and the installation of what might easily amount to a Christian nationalist government. Now, those of us who already engage in a struggle against white supremacy culture, and I include Star King in that struggle, already believe that Christian nationalists have long been at work through conservative institutions and individuals. But the last 7 to 10 years and the events surrounding that time have made this conservative fever dream of the last 50 years more accessible and perhaps inevitable. Emboldened by these erosions of democratic norms in the United States, an erosion that they helped to fund, the Heritage Foundation, always more conservative than the American people at large, now feels free to say the quiet part out loud. The conservative promise outlines four broad goals that they believe will decide America's future. Restoring the family is the centerpiece of American life, and protecting our children, dismantling the administrative state and returning self-governance to the American people, defending the nation's sovereignty, borders, and bounty against global threat, and securing our God-given individual rights to live freely, what our Constitution calls the blessings of liberty. That's taken from their executive summary. At first glance, that doesn't sound terrible. After all, my family is the center of my life. I, too, believe in self-governance and the capacity of people to decide for themselves. I believe in protecting my country, anything that would disrupt my way of life or the lives of my neighbors, and I believe in the right to live freely and enjoy the blessings of liberty, so they're all noble goals. But context is everything. Here is a portion of their introduction. I quote, The next conservative president must make the institutions of American civil society hard targets for woke culture warriors. This starts with deleting the terms sexual orientation and gender identity, diversity, equity, and inclusion, gender, gender equality, gender equity, gender awareness, gender sensitive, abortion, reproductive health, reproductive rights, and any other term used to deprive Americans of their First Amendment rights, to be removed out of every federal rule, agency, regulation, contract, grant, regulation, and piece of legislation that exists," end quote. Yet here is the part where the religious leader in me turned cold their interpretation of the Founders' intent in the matter of liberty and happiness. I quote, When the Founders spoke of the pursuit of happiness, what they meant might be understood today, in essence, as the pursuit of blessedness. That is, an individual must be free to live as his Creator ordained him to flourish. Our Constitution grants each of us the liberty to do not what we want, but what we ought. They believe that they only have two years and one shot to get this right. They think that there are enemies at home and that there is no margin for error. Those enemies are us, you know. Time is running short, they say. If we fail the fight, The very idea of America might be lost. The conservative promise represents the best effort of the conservative movement and the next conservative president's last opportunity to save our republic. They are working to save the country from people like you and like me. And it's painful to acknowledge because we are not necessarily people who are itching for a fight. But we have to understand that there are groups with whom we are at war. The passages I read to you from Mandate for Leadership is a joint project of 50 or more conservative organizations, some of whom I've never heard of before, but some of whom you might recognize The Alliance Defending Freedom, a group that has targeted the parents of transgender children and their efforts to find gender-affirming care. The Honest Election Project, part of the fraudulent attempt to undermine confidence in the country's voting systems. The American Legislative Exchange Council, many of us know it as ALEC, They have infiltrated state legislatures for years, drafted legislation that limits the rights of unions and support voter suppression bills. No matter what their specific focus, all these organizations have joined forces to write policies, recruit conservatives for cabinet and under-cabinet roles, and prepare to dismantle government as we understand it today. And they believe that they have been called by God to do this work. I urge you to go online and look at it. It's all in public. 920 pages. A detailed plan to create a country that is anathema to everything we believe in as people of liberal religious faith. So what will we do? I think we must prepare ourselves for a long fight. It's no longer about who gets elected president, though that is supremely important. And so there are things we must do to prepare ourselves. I urge you to begin to strengthen your spiritual practices you will need grounding. This is a long fight. We are progressive and faithful people, and we're animated by this vision of beloved community that sometimes grows dim before us. In order to sustain ourselves, we have to ground ourselves. And I don't think we should be picky about what it is that helps us ground ourselves in spiritual practice. But we must be more consistent not only for the work, but for our own sake. Seek out the practice that brings you to your center and stay with it, because this fight will take time. You can't resist what you don't recognize, and so please take a page from the poet and activist Maya Angelou, who says that when someone tells you who they are the first time, believe them. There's nothing happening right now nothing, that we were not told would happen, but we didn't believe it. We thought everybody was exaggerating, but they weren't. Believe what your eyes have seen and what your ears have heard. And we must organize, taking our cues from marginalized people. Those who live with the most vulnerable communities within those communities are very conscious of the dangers. Pay attention to how those communities are being treated, to be prepared to partner with them, to defend them, to fund them. One of the strengths of the conservative movement has been and continues to be their capacity to fund organizing groups for years and years and years. They don't fund projects. They keep the lights on they keep people employed, they keep people ready for a moment like this. Believe in the capacity, though, for people to change, because everyone is not like the people organizing this group. There are people who want what's right for our nation and its people, but they get conflicting information, and they have their own fears and insecurities, and they're not sure what to do. We who struggle and resist need to do it in a way that speaks to those people out of our religious values. This is not just a political fight. This is a spiritual fight. We must learn to make the case for the inherent worth and dignity of every person that is our religious heritage. We have to fight for the importance of religious freedom, religious freedom, that is both our spiritual and our democratic heritage. Be relentless. There was a time when political matters functioned on compromise, on working things out and talking things through. And for now, that time has passed. It may return again, but for now, We cannot allow people to distract us. Our religious values are real values, and we need to treat them that way, and struggle for them that way, and encounter people with them in that way. We need to keep our self-perspective. You'll notice earlier I did a meditation before this sermon. It's something I wrote in my days as a parish minister in response to things I had noticed as part of my pastoral responsibilities. Congregants were living with mistakes that were a terrible burden to them, and yet they had no place to put it down. We who are preparing to demand so much accountability from this country have to be willing to be accountable ourselves. And so, we need to create opportunities for that, individually and collectively. Above all else, we must prepare for the long game. We are seeing the results of a battle plan that has been more than 60 years in the making, fueled by everything that we regard as progress. These groups want to return to a time when people like me and likely you, knew their place. They have been organizing forever. They have committed to funding this fight forever. And so we must be committed forever. We may not live to see the results of our fight, and we must be prepared for that reality. But I always think about the civil rights movement the movement that gave life to my dreams and aspirations that began when I was only a baby in my mother's arms. I think about Montgomery, Alabama, a place where for 381 days, people walked to work, worked all day, walked to the church, prayed for hours, went back home, went to sleep, and got up and did it over and over and over and over. If we want this country, if we want our lives, we must begin with prayer, meditation, and strengthening of our spirits, and then we must go toe-to-toe with the people who want to take our country away from us. It's painful to talk about this, because I don't want to fight. That's not my default position. But a fight is what we are in. And if we don't understand that, we cannot win it. All of these things are meant to give us clarity, to assess our best path for justice and love and the world that we want. It will not be seamless, and it will not be perfect, and it will take a long time. But it is the only way that I can imagine standing against this storm that is surely already on its way. May we be prepared. Blessed be, and amen.
1: When my son Max was small, I would take him to Texas to spend the summer with my family. We would gather at my mother's house for casual dinners that would go long into the night. After dessert, after the latest news and politics had been thoroughly dissected and argued over, we would slump into our chairs, worn out, but happy to be together and unwilling to part with each other's company regardless of the late hour. Someone would offhandedly start to reminisce about Mexico. And a round of stories would begin. Some of the stories had been told so often that they turned into collective songs. If a part was missing, someone else would take over without missing a beat. There's big magic in retelling family stories. Imbued with the current aspect and life stages of the people sharing it, its meaning shrinks and expands and evolves in complexity. Now, Max, the first grandchild on both sides of the family, was hearing stories that included him, the newest chapters in the book of us. I've noticed an element in the tellings about our life in this country that is not present in the stories before our arrival in the US. Placing them in chronological order reveals a slow awakening on our part, becoming less and less romantic as we stumble time and again upon racism. The early stories from our arrival are in the vein of a comedy of manners full of hilarious cultural misunderstandings that would surely be smoothed over with time and more experience. In the next phase, the stories start turning into explorations of American culture and our obligation to work on our own reactions, knowing that it would require patience and grace to find common ground with our new neighbors. After that point, in later stories, the possibility begins to dawn on us that some rough patches might not have been accidents after all. Then our stories tell of our dismay and when we realize the instances of having been undeniably undermined, at realizing that pain had indeed been inflicted on purpose by people we trusted, that the reserve we cultivated had not been regarded as refinement, but as weakness or worse, permission. After that point, the stories become about dogged survival. Here's a story from one. My mother, a labor and delivery nurse, developed a childbirth education program, which became very popular, attracting a large number of expected parents to the hospital. Realizing how successful it was, the head of the education department decided to remove my mother and give it to a group of friends. But my mother would not go quietly. Eventually, obstetricians who supported the program came to my mother's aid, and after a ruckus, the program she worked so hard to create stayed under her direction. The boss and her posse of white nurses retaliated against my mother, going so far as to vandalize her office. Things got so heated that the hospital's chief of security, a black man, under, uh, understood the danger that my mother was in and assigned a guard to walk her to and from her car. This lasted for months. My mother did not give up. In the end, she prevailed. ¿Cómo se atreven? How dare they, she'd say in dismay. Well, right now, our nation is facing thugs, who want to destroy our democracy and offer the spoils on a golden platter to their voracious idol in the hope of fattening themselves by licking the crumbs he leaves behind. But we see them clearly. That's why they rail at the word woke. It means our eyes are open. Our commitment to finding truth is the light that illuminates their wickedness. Let me tell you a story. This is a story about us. A story about you and me. And of why I like to linger at the table with this large, rambunctious, unitarian, universalist family of families. Because there is always room here for one more. Because you value reason and consent Because you take seriously your moral obligation to serve love and justice. Because you know that there is no such thing as virtue that is not socially incarnated. Because you are masters of optimism. Not as flight of fancy, but optimism as sound, substantial practice to be lived out in the world. Because you show up. You always show up. Up. It's true that the brutes are at the door, but we are the always-inclusive, ever-expanding, Unitarian Universalist family of families. We know who we are because we know who we have been—honest, principled, clear-eyed people who have everything it takes, not just to resist, but to persevere. So, the insurrection at the capital como se atreven right